Part Number One, Chapter Three of Israel's Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Florshinger, Montana. Israel's Faith by Nathan Solomon Joseph. What We Know About God. Chapter 3 What We Know About God. If you had a friend living a long way off, whom you had never seen, but who had always been kind to you, paying you attention in various ways, you would, no doubt, desire to know all about this unseen friend. You would try to do something to please him. You would, moreover, try to find someone who had seen this friend, so that you might learn all about him. But if you could not discover any person who had seen him, you would endeavor to find out his character in another way. You would think over all the presents he had sent you, and the manner in which they were sent, and the quantity in which they were supplied, and the purpose of each, and you would thereby be able to arrive at a pretty good guess of what your friend's character was like. Now you and I have such a friend, and his name is God, and I have already shown you that we have only one such friend. Neither you nor I have ever seen him, but we receive presents from him every day. I dare say that you feel that you ought to know something about his power, his nature, his character, his likings and dislikings. This is what we mean when we talk of the attributes of God. Well, let us see if we can find some of the information we want. God has given us the earth to live upon. What a magnificent present! Of how many thousands of presents does it consist? If we lived hundreds of years, we should never be able to count the treasures it contains, never grow tired of the beauties it exhibits. What a wonderful world it is! There is everything to charm the sight. The face of nature is so fair that we never weary of it. The fields and forests the heavens and their hosts, the glorious sea, all delight our senses. Think of the flowers so sweet to smell, so charming to the sight, filling our houses with fragrance and cheerfulness. Think of the food so bountifully supplied and so agreeable to the taste as to render the satisfying hunger one of the great pleasures of life. Think of the fresh air of heaven, how balmy it is. Think of the joys of the heart and of the soul, the emotion of love, of gratitude, of hope, and the comfort of a good conscience. It is a splendid place, this world of ours. But now you are reminding me that there are such things as disease, want, suffering in many forms, hatred, crime, many, many shocking things that will hardly bear thinking about, that though the mountains look so beautiful, there are such things as volcanoes, 
pouring out destructive fire that though the sea is so grand a sight there are such things as shipwrecks that though the birds sing so sweetly and though their plunge is so lovely there are such things as vultures and eagles who live only by the death of other animals you are quite right to mention them we cannot shut our eyes to the truth but a little thought will help us to explain why there is so much evil in the world as well as good something within us tells us that there is a world beyond this that when we die we shall live elsewhere in a happier and better state we are taught this at home and at school and to you and me who have learned this from other sources other than our own thoughts and feelings it may be difficult to think that this idea would come into our heads naturally without any teaching nevertheless this is true for the most savage nations have the notion of a future life implanted in their breasts not merely as a hope but as a conviction this world is a place for preparation for the future world here we have to make ourselves fit for the future world here we have to make ourselves fit for the enjoyment of everlasting life and the joys of the next world will depend on our conduct in this even savages think that their heroes who die in battle according to their ideas the most noble end will be rewarded in the world to come and even the most uneducated human beings among those we call civilized have some vague ideal that their crimes will be punished in a world beyond this we too though we cannot say why believe the same now let us try to account for the presence of evil by a familiar illustration suppose that at school you were not compelled to learn but were allowed to do whatever you liked so that if you felt inclined to talk or to have a game or to go out for a walk during school hours you could do so without your master finding fault with you would the master who so indulged you be really kind silly and thoughtless children might perhaps think he was but you know better you know that you go to school for the purpose of learning those things which will be useful to you when you grow older if you attend to your studies at school you will get on in the world you will become clever and good and people will respect and love you it is therefore the duty of your master to see that you do attend to your studies the good master will always do this sometimes he will encourage you by fair words by smiles and by giving you prizes at other times he may find it necessary to speak angrily to you to frown at you or to punish you now the sensible master who occasionally frowns and punishes you is your best friend while the foolish instructor who always indulges your fancies and your frolics is in fact your enemy 
It is perhaps difficult for you to see this at the time. While you are being punished, you feel angry with your teacher and think him too harsh. But the time will come when you will see things in their true light. When you have left school, you will feel thankful to him who checked your indolence by wholesome punishment and will despise him who encouraged it by his indulgence. Now if you consider this life as a place of preparation for a happier and better life, you must regard the world as a school in which your soul is to be educated and trained, so as to fit it for a happy destiny in the next world. Thus it is that God acts towards us as a wise instructor. He calls into activity the noble impulses of our shoulds and checks its evil tendencies. Sometimes he causes the light of his countenance to shine upon us, showering down blessings upon us and prospering our undertakings. At other times he finds it necessary to frown upon us, to disappoint our hopes, to afflict us with disease, or other misfortunes. But all is done for our own eventual good. You may depend upon it that God knows how to teach us the all-important lesson how to prepare for the future life, that he knows when to encourage and when to chasten. You may rest assured that it would not be for our advantage if we always had things as we wished them to be, even as children sometimes require to be corrected, lest they become selfish and willful. Even so do men require trials and disappointments to recall them to a sense of duty and to improve their soul. And God is far too wise and too good a teacher to withhold the needful correction. By our very nature we require occasional sorrow and suffering. But perhaps you may ask, could not God who created us have so formed us as to have different natures? Could he not have made us so naturally inclined to do good that we should not have needed correction? Let us look into our own experience for an illustration. Suppose that a teacher offered prizes to those of his pupils who would answer a number of examination questions. Suppose that contrary to the usual custom, he were to set very simple questions and, begin parentheses, to make it a very easy matter to answer them, end parentheses, allowed his scholars to refer to as many books as they pleased, and even to copy the answers from them. I know what you would say to this. You would object to it altogether. You would say, I should not care for a prize so easily gained. This examination would not prove my merit at all. Any dunce could answer as well as I could in such circumstances, so I would rather be excused from being examined. If I gained the prize, I should not deserve it, and so would not value it. 
but just suppose the teacher were to give such questions as he thought his pupils ought to be able to answer. If they had worked hard and used their time well, and supposed he left them entirely to their own resources, thinking that with the knowledge he had conveyed to them, they ought to be well able to answer even the most difficult questions. What would you say then? You would say, I shall be glad to be examined upon these terms. I know I shall have to work hard to deserve the prize, but if I work hard, I shall gain it. Such a prize will be worth having. Let us apply this illustration. Life in our school. God, our great schoolmaster, everlasting happiness, the prize he offers to us, his pupils. If it required no exertion on our part to obtain this prize, if life offered no difficulties and no temptations, so that we could hardly help doing good, where would be our merit? Our happiness would be marred by the thought that it had not been earned by our exertions. Therefore God, in his goodness, has ordained it otherwise. Like the wise schoolmaster, he has made the examination hard, and consequently the prize worth having. He has placed difficulties and temptations in our way, that we might battle with them and obtain the victory. To some, he has made life a struggle for existence, but doubtless he has made them proportionately strong to enable them to carry on the struggle for existence. Everyone has his sorrows, his pains, his heartburnings, his temptations, and his difficulties. Even the most favored are not free from them. Let us not cry over them. Let us rather remember that they are as the difficult examination questions. They are a mark of the goodness of our Creator. The evil is there for man to conquer, and God has given man the power to conquer it. The passions are strong within us, but the will to overcome them is even stronger. The voice of temptation is loud, but the voice of conscience is louder. And so, too, in the world of matter, if the enemy be famine, man finds some mode of improving the barren ground. If it be tempest, he has at hand the means of warding it off and protecting himself from its ravages. If it be the loss of worldly possessions, he has within himself the energy to take heart and to try to replace them. If it be disease, he finds remedies to fight it and even to prolong the span of life. If it be death, he has it in his power so to live as to make death itself but a passing evil for a lasting good. Yes, there are evils in the world, but they are the incentives to our toil. They are the giants with whom we have to contend. To conquer them by honest strength of purpose is the aim 
and the end of the great battle of life. Thus, then, we see how evil tends to our eternal welfare. Shall we fail to acknowledge that the being who has given us such a beautiful place to live in, endowed us with such powers of enjoying its beauties, and so kindly fashioned our body and mind so wonderfully? Is a being infinitely good, merciful, and wise? End of chapter 3 Recording by Susan Florsinger, Montana